0: This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Justin Kreuter, the bowtie bandit of blood, a transfusion medicine pathologist at Mayo Clinic. Today, we're rounding with Dr. Marshall Mazepa, assistant professor of medicine at the University of Minnesota on the topic of thrombotic, thrombocytopenic, purpura, a mouthful that we're going to probably abbreviate a lot today as TTP. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Mazeppa.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. It's, it's quite a pleasure.
0: This uh, conversation between us today, this is right in your wheelhouse. You've done a lot of work on TTP. Maybe we can kick off because we have a very diverse audience, as you just heard. Why is it important for physicians to have some understanding about TTP?
1: That's a fair question. It's a rare disease and maybe a little esoteric for most folks, unless you're a specialist like me with a career interest in the disease. And I would say even the terminology around TTP is a bit confusing because the name has changed over the years. Many years ago, since I started my training till now, it initially was called TTP-HUS, a syndrome, because we didn't understand what it was, and then changed to TTP in a uh, acquired TTP and more recently shifted to immune TTP. So, let me just start by clarifying some of this alphabet soup a bit. TTP HUS was again the name of the syndrome, and now we really use this term thrombotic microangiopathy to kind of be the umbrella term for a family of diseases that all have these shared characteristics of low platelets fragmented red blood cells or microangiopathic hemolytic anemia and organ damage. And I try to use the term TTP to really describe a very specific disease. So it's a TMA or thrombotic microangiopathy caused by a deficiency of a, an enzyme called ts 13 breaks up Willebrand factor into tiny pieces. And most people who have TTP, we're really talking about the immune form of the disease where that enzyme is inhibited or cleared. But there is a an even more rare form of the disease called congenital or hereditary TTP. So getting back to your question, why is it important to understand this disease? I think first, TTP is rare but deadly, and that's a bad combination. And before we had good treatments, the disease was essentially uniformly fatal. So it's really important to recognize and diagnose the disease because we do have good treatments now. so when the disease is recognized, the modern fatality rate is now down to probably less than 10%. And that really was changed in the 80s and early 90s when plasmic change was recognized as a good treatment. And then the second reason is for those of us hematologists who really manage the disease long-term, really starting to recognize there's a chronic phase of the disease. There's some serious long-term complications from the disease we need to really better understand and treat.
0: Wow. I like that you're really kind of hitting on uh, for our more general audience. It's important to understand it's rare, but a deadly disease. So, you know, I know we have emergency medicine physicians that listen to this podcast, for example. That's why it's, might be something to kind of cue up in their differential diagnosis, because I think you're hitting on there's interventions that we can do and being timely about that's important to change that outcome for the patient. And then also uh, some of our subspecialists that are listening as well to understand this chronic phase. And I think that's also important for us pathologists to be aware of. And I I imagine this will be what you'll kind of, or this really dovetails into my next question, which is what's new in this immune uh, TTP area?
1: It's an exciting time to be in TTP because for the first time we have a new treatment and uh, I think better understanding these long-term complications. So I, you probably can tell, I think of the disease as really in two phases. There's this acute phase when the patient's ill and there's some opportunities to improve outcomes there, I think. And then the second part, which is the chronic form of the disease. So what's new acutely is that there's a new treatment called caplisizumab. That's a new drug that's recently approved. The first drug we've had approved for uh, immune TTP. And this drug was added to plasma exchange and uh, the two large randomized trials that led to its approval. And then interesting, the medicine was then continued. It's a daily injection under the skin for 30 days afterwards. So really, I kind of describe this to patients as plasma exchange in a, in a bottle. So it really is a booster. And I think that's great because what we saw in the trials was that the patients got out of the hospital sooner. Their platelet count is how we monitored the disease, both from the hematology standpoint and from the lab medicine apheresis standpoint, how we decide our treatments. We saw no refractory TTP. Now, that's a term It's a little bit loose. It basically means the platelet count isn't going up, and there are many ways to define this, but it's another term for really bad disease. And there were no patients who had refractory TTP in the arm that got these treatments. And in the people who continued on the drug for 30 days after they started remission, there were very few exacerbations. Another of research term but it really refers to the fact that when you stop plasma exchange when the patient seems to be in remission there's a good chance in the next 30 days the disease will come back it's estimated probably in the range of 30 to 50 percent and that's what we saw in the placebo arm of the studies and so all these problems improved when this medicine was added to standard treatment so pretty exciting I'll say it has been a bit controversial because it has a high price tag like so many new medicines. So I think we're still learning how to use the medicine, but certainly the results of the trials that led to its approval is is exciting, uh, I think, and a good opportunity. Uh, I think the second part is these chronic complications that I mentioned before. And so trying to understand why these complications are happening is an important part. I don't think we really know yet why complications. And there are really three complications. One is that stroke appears to be quite common in survivors. Depression and problems with thinking. It's been known about for a long time, actually. And relapses. It's an immune disease, so not surprisingly for those of us that treat autoimmune diseases, the disease comes back.
0: That's really interesting. So could we kind of go back to the acute You described caplicizumab as kind of that plasma exchange in the bottle. And also, and I appreciate you're kind of highlighting that it really has a high price tag, and we're still kind of working on how do we think about this medication. It sounded like the trial was done as an adjunct, like you did plasma exchange and caplacizumab. Is that kind of what What? some of the current thinking is right now is if you have a new patient show up, you do caplacizumab and plasma exchange together, or are there certain patient populations, like certain characteristics who would or who would not get this medication?
1: Sure. Right now, the uh, expert panel from the ISTH, uh, International Society on Thrombosis and Hemostasis, have advised the addition of caplacizumab to plasma exchange in people with this diagnosis, recognizing that there are barriers to the medication in the U.S. and in other countries as well. But for those patients with the diagnosis, it is recommended to be given in addition as a booster to plasma exchange, since that's how the medicine was studied uh, in the trials. Now, whether there are certain patients who would benefit, that would be great to be able to pick those patients out. I think the challenge is who gets the medicine. The other point that I didn't mention before is that in a study where the investigators combined the data from the two trials, they actually saw a significant reduction in mortality. There were no patients who died from this disease who got this drug and four patients who died who did not get the drug. So thankfully still with modern treatment, it's a highly treatable disease, but I think this tells us there's an opportunity to improve. I think the challenge is how do you pick out those people? That's really tough to pick out those patients who are at higher risk. So I think we will see more interest in trying to know better tailor treatments to try to improve cost effectiveness. But for now, there isn't really a great way to pick out who the patients who are going to clearly benefit are.
0: Join us for this year's non malignant hematology conference held via live stream October 8th through 9th, 2021. Visit mayocliniclabs.com forward slash NMH 2021. For more information. I wonder, uh, and, and I think for our audience, uh, we will link the papers in the show notes that we're mentioning and recommendations, because I think this is a neat area to kind of dive down and, and look at this primary uh, research uh, literature. But I was wondering for my own self as a laboratorian, as a pathologist, I was wondering if you can kind of elaborate a little bit more about these chronic complications, that's not so much in what my usual clinical experience is. And I think right. this is an area where getting a, a little bit of a better understanding. I mean, this conversation we're having here, this really kind of dovetails this whole purpose of this podcast is to connect lab medicine and clinical practice. And so I think we'd really benefit from hearing a little bit more more about this stroke, depression, challenges with mentation, the relapse. How are you evaluating and caring for the patient in this kind of chronic phase of uh, TTP?
1: I did some training in in blood bank transfusion medicine as well. And so I can really appreciate the laboratory and role in this disease because the reality is that in the acute phase, in the hospital, when patients are receiving plasma exchange, the patients really see a lot more of the laboratory medicine team. We're with them for an hour and a half to two and a half hours during their plasma exchange treatment. And there really is an opportunity uh, to engage with the patient during the procedure about understanding this complicated disease and why do I need long-term follow-up or what's happening next? Uh, because most of the time these patients are relatively healthy and this can be fairly traumatic. That's a serious disease and uh, someone who's essentially been well before. So why long-term follow-up? I think the story of stroke is a recently described phenomenon. This was from a, a study out of Johns Hopkins, which cares for a lot of patients with this disease. And the, the senior author was uh, Dr. Chaturvedi, who's a colleague and an excellent TTP researcher. And they found that survivors of, of TTP do have a high incidence of stroke compared to a matched uh, patient population. Now, we don't know why that is. Presumably, it's the same disease process. Uh, we know that ts 13 levels can fluctuate over time, and so maybe it's related to that. Certainly, if we played the odds, I think it would be something related to this. You really don't know. There was some data from this paper that showed it there was a relationship between ts 13 deficiency during remission, but I think it's still too early to really understand long-term how do we prevent these episodes, but certainly it, it raises our concern that this is related to the disease being still active in a chronic phase. Depression and uh, memory problems in particular have been known about, and these were described ri- originally by... The godfather of TTP research in the U.S., Dr. Jim George from the University of Oklahoma. And largely, this information came from patient support groups, which was really great. I think really shows us the importance of of connecting patients to these kind of support systems. And then, of course, relapse. We know immune diseases do tend to relapse. There's much interest in trying to predict the relapses. Turns out Adam T.S. 13 deficiency is helpful, but we probably need better tools to predict relapse. And certainly there have been some early studies of using immune suppression to prevent relapse, uh, but no randomized trials yet. So I think we really need to engage with our patients about what's known, what are sort of risks and benefits of trying to intervene to prevent some of these episodes when we don't or the complications rather, because there's still not a lot known about what causes them.
0: This is really interesting to kind of hear from a hematologist perspective what really stays on the plate as a continued chronic concern. I'm particularly interested about you're talking about relapse. It sounds like ADAMS-TS13 isn't really a great predictor of it. So I imagine you're sort of looking at, you know, how is the patient feeling and, you know, having a CBC come back with maybe that the platelet count down in the tank. About stroke, you did mention maybe there is some kind of a connection with ADAMS-TS13 potentially. Do you think there's a role for repeat testing of ADAMS-TS13 on these patients in chronic phase, or is it that's an area that's unknown at this point?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's largely unknown, but advocated for. Certainly, uh, I think our European colleagues are very aggressive about monitoring and treating early. It's an understandable perspective. It's a bad disease. And if we can prevent these complications, I think things like pandemic and the risks of immunosuppression maybe tilt that balance a little bit. My approach is a little conservative. I'll generally tell patients what's known about ts 13 and its association with complications like relapse and stroke. I'll uh, say, if we don't know what we're going to do with the information, we shouldn't look. But I think if you want to take a proactive role, consider treatments to suppress the immune system if the levels are low, then I think we should follow. But we should have a plan beforehand. So it's a long discussion as we enter remission to think about what are we going to do long term? Because the last thing I want to do is cause more anxiety about relapse if we don't have a plan. So uh, I would say it's a conditional yes. <laughs> I think as as long as everyone understands that this is not a crystal ball, then I think it's a, it's a reasonable approach. So many of my patients do choose to monitor levels every few months, but it's not universal and the that's part of the the beauty of medicine is that patients can understand the risks and benefits and make their own decision.
0: Well, Dr. Uh, Mazzefa, it sounds like you're a straight shooter, which (laughs) I always appreciate having a straight shooter on the uh, podcast to interview. I wonder if we could kind of close out with this kind of coming back to at the beginning, you were really kind of going through a lot of the terminology changes, how our understanding of this disease has evolved. You have this area of expertise and I'm kind of curious for what do you see on the horizon? What do you think the future looks like for TTP?
1: Yeah, that's something I'm always thinking about. Uh, And I think our patients really will help inform this, which is great. We're really trying to improve the patient's access to research and access to researchers to inform where things are going. But I think for the acute disease, more targeted treatments, and potentially even there's talk of uh, trials without plasma exchange. Uh, I think this would start in patients who are certainly less ill acutely. Anytime you talk about de-escalating treatment, you have to be careful. But So can we use our targeted treatments to improve the quality of life for our patients acutely? Maybe even keeping them in the hospital for only a few days instead of many days. I think we have to understand these chronic complications, stroke and relapse better, and the cognitive impairment, the depression. Where do these come from? Why are these happening? If we can understand them, then hopefully we can prevent them. While the tendency is to focus on the fact that we know the disease is caused by ADAMTS or T deficiency, I think the reality of medicine is it's always more complicated than we think it is. <laughs> and so I'm betting that it's more nuanced than just the missing enzyme. There are other risk factors. There are other ways that we can tailor our treatments and try to prevent those relapses in those higher risk patients or, or other complications, target those people more aggressive treatment, and then for the patients who are at lower risk, a less intensive treatment. So like so many things in medicine, a more tailored approach using these new tools we have to improve outcomes for our patients.
0: Yeah, I really agree with you 100%. I think there is a more nuanced view, which I think that you really inform our community about and I think it is important that we're customizing and thinking about tailoring these treatments for patients. Uh, I like that approach. And I just want to say we've been rounding with Dr. Marshall Mazeppa about thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura. And so thank you again, Dr. Marshall Mazeppa, for joining us today.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure.
0: So if you want to hear more on this topic, Dr. Mazepa will be presenting at the Non-Malignant Hematology Conference taking place via live stream, October 8th through 9th, 2021. To all of our listeners, thank you for joining us today. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email. Please direct any suggestions to mcleducation at mayo.edu. If you've enjoyed Lab Medicine Rounds podcast, please follow or subscribe until our next rounds together we encourage you to continue to connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations.